0: Shalom, everyone, and welcome to our new weekly Soul of the Parsha class. We have arrived at the Parsha Turumah. It is the 19th Parsha since the beginning of the Torah, and the 7th Parsha since the beginning of the Book of Exodus. 7 is a special number, and this is a special Parsha. In many ways, we're getting to the heart of the Book of Exodus. This is the first of several parashot that deal with the building of the tabernacles, Sorry, of the tabernacle, in singular, and the various kelim, the various vessels and uh, elements within the tabernacle, or the sanctuary. And our topic for today is, how do we transform our own hearts into a sanctuary for God, into a sort of inner safe space that we can go into? And we can experience God within our own hearts. It's a very basic tenet of Judaism, of the monotheistic faith, that we want not just to perform the commandments and follow God's will. We also want to be intimately, spiritually connected to God. And it's not something only outside of us, it's also something within us. And that means that we have to find within our. our own internal turmoils and within our own inner reality, a space, create a space that serves as a sanctuary for God, that God can be present there, we can experience God, and that's safe, that's bounded, that's untouched by the external turmoils of our lives, and also the the internal ones. So, this is a question for today. How do we transform our own hearts into a sanctuary for God? The, we're concentrating this year on the first segment of each parasha. The first segment of this parasha is an introduction to the construction of the tabernacle. It starts with the call to the people of Israel to donate willingly. Each one can donate donate their own sums. There are different donations during the period of time we spend in the desert. Some donations are the same amount for everyone. This is the machatzit shekel, the half a shekel donation that we read about in the previous Shabbat in the haftarah. But there is also this donation which is unique and special for each and every person. It, it depends on what they want to give. Some give more, some give less. The important thing is to give something. And it's special for everyone. So this is the name of the parsha also. The name of the parsha is Toruma. Toruma means donation. There are several donations in the Torah, but the donation we're talking about here is, it also alludes to several donations, but it has to do with the donation of building the tabernacle. Each one has to provide something. So the beginning of the parsha has to do with the call to donate various elements. It's um, also different pieces of of uh, cloth and uh, um, uh, gems and and um, uh, um, oil and uh, various pieces of cloth and also gold and silver, many many different things. And uh, so that's the first part of the first segment. And then the second part of the first segment has to do with the instructions to build the ark. The ark is in the center of the sanctuary, of the tabernacle, it's in the Holy of Holies. The purpose of the Holy of Holies is to contain the ark, and the purpose of the ark is to contain the tablets. So the tablets are given once Moses comes down from the mountain, he brings the two tablets. Of course, we know that the first two tablets are going to be broken following the sin of the Golden calf, But then two more tablets are given, and eventually the Ark will contain both the first broken tablets and the second whole tablets. And also, the Ark is covered by the cover. The cover has the two cherubim, the two cherubs, kruvim, the two golden angels that face one another. Although the description of the building of the cover already belongs to the second segment of the parsha. So, again, the, we're talking about the first segment. It starts with an introduction, just calling the people to donate whatever they have, all the raw material from which the tabernacle will be built. It then goes on to describe the construction of the ark, but the, the description of the cover of the ark already belongs to the separation. It already belongs to the second segment. So, all this is important to what we're going to talk about uh, in this class. Now, in between these two things, the introductory general call for everyone to donate and the description of the Ark, we have a very, very fundamental verse, and that's the verse we're going to focus on, at least in the first half of this class. And the verse is First in Hebrew, I'll read it, and you shall make me a sanctuary so that I may dwell among them or within them. So it says, you or they shall make me a sanctuary, the people of Israel should make me a sanctuary, so that I may dwell among them or within them, depends how you translate it. V'shachanti betucham. In many ways, this single verse, encapsulates the entire parsha and also the the following parsha that have to do with the construction of the of the tabernacle the whole purpose of the tabernacle is for god to have a dwelling place in the physical world in the physical universe this is something that's a bit paradoxical a bit uh, strange to 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 uh, you know strange concept to Follow to understand, but this is the concept at the heart of the entire image of the tabernacle, which takes up such a great, uh, you know, place in the story of the Torah. and And the purpose is so God can dwell within us or among us, depends how we translate. Also, connect this also connects very strongly to the Hebrew month that we have now entered. On Friday and Saturday, we celebrated the first day of the month of Adar. This is the current Hebrew month. And the word Adar is read, you split the word in between, into Aleph, the first letter, which symbolizes unity, and Dal. Dar means dwells or lives or inhabits. So, the idea that Adar symbolizes God. God is the, the uh, source of all unity. He's the one God. Alufos olam, the champion or the master of the universe, and he do- wishes to dwell within this world. So, it's, it, it applies to this particular month, Adal alef, Dal, unity, dwelling among us, and coinciding with the beginning of the month, we read this parasha. Now, we want to start with a short, beautiful story that brings us closer to understanding this concept of the tabernacle. It appears in the Midrash, the homiletical exegesis uh, for this parsha, Midrash Rabbah. And God is saying something very, uh, very incredible. He says, I give you, I sell to you, I give to you my Torah. But this is a unique gift. Why is it a unique gift? Because not only am I giving you my Torah, I am giving you myself with the Torah, so to speak. This is how the Midrash says. I am, so to speak, selling myself, giving myself over to you with the Torah. And now comes the story. The story is about a king who had just one girl. He had no other sons or daughters. He had one girl. And the time came for her to marry. So he finally found the right prince that uh, deserves to marry his wife his precious only child, his only daughter. But the problem is, because she's his only child, he can't stand the thought of uh, letting her go, of not seeing her anymore. He doesn't have any other children to comfort him. So he says, now I have a big problem. I can't uh, uh, keep her to myself because she has to marry you. And you can't take her because then I'll go crazy. I can't live without her. So my request, says the king to the prince, to his son-in-law, my request is that you build me a small room that you can, like a chamber, that you can carry with you wherever you're going. And I'm very modest. I don't need much. I just need that small room. And wherever you're going in the world, you're going to your kingdom or to some other places, I'm going to come with you. It's just that I can't separate from my daughter. And So just build me this small, this tiny little room, modest room, accommodation, and and if you don't mind, I'm going to be this kind of father-in-law that never leaves his daughter. I'm going to be with you all the time. And, of course, the idea is that the the king is God, and the, the, the princess is the Torah, and the prince is the Jewish people marrying the Torah. And God says, me and the Torah are inseparable. It's not just that the, the Ark and the Holy of Holies and the Tabernacle, they're not just containing the Torah. That's like as if you're marrying my daughter and you're taking her away and I'm, and you, you leave me behind. But that's not how it goes. Me and my daughter, me and the Torah are inseparable. And you're not just marrying the Torah, my daughter. In a way, you're marrying me also. And I am in that Tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, in the Ark, uh, always with you. I just need this small room that can travel from place to place. Now, this is a very powerful image. And it reminds us, basically, of two very basic things in, in the Jewish faith. One is that, we're, again, we're not just married to the Torah, we're married to God. The Torah is a means for connecting to God. And sometimes people can go so deeply into the Torah that they forget about God. It just becomes this incredible text that they fall in love with, and they love the text, they love the ideas, they love the study, they love the challenge, but they forget, they disconnect the princess from the king, they forget about the king. And and that's not how it is. The king is there with the Torah, it goes together. And the tabernacle is for him, for the the Divine Presence, not just for the Torah. And then the second thing it reminds us is very deep also. It reminds us that the tabernacle is in essence something that moves from place to place. Because the image in the story is, wherever you're going, I need you to build me this little room that you can carry with you from place to place. You know, like those kind of, the like the ark itself has uh, the sticks that you use it to carry it from place to place and the entire tabernacle, you bring you you take it apart and you build it every time you will go in the desert. So the tabernacle, which is the original temple, was something that was uh, could move with the people. It It wasn't stationary. It didn't stay put in one place. We're so accustomed to the image and to the longing to rebuild the holy temple in Jerusalem. But all this, the fact that there's one place, Temple Mount, in Jerusalem, and this is where the two temples that existed in history were, and that the third temple is supposed to be, all this is only after King David chooses Jerusalem as his capital, and says this is the place that God wants to build a temple, and then from that point on, this is the place. But the original temple was the tabernacle. It wasn't the first temple, it wasn't the second temple, it wasn't the third temple that we want. And so it's it's great that the place was found, and now there's an actual physical center, to worship, and of course, every time a Jew prays, prays wherever he is in the world, he 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 faces uh, Jerusalem and the Temple Mount because now we have an actual center. But it's it's very important to remember that originally there was no center, or there was a center, but the center was able to move from place to place. So this is something very deep. You know, people who compare religions, people who study in the university and they compare religions they always say every religion has something like a holy space. There's certain holy space, and there's always a place that is the center of the universe. And Judaism is no exception. We have a holy place, and it's the center of the universe, right? It's the Holy of Holies, it's the center of the universe. But we need to remember that originally, and that's how it starts, which means we have to bear this in mind even after David chose Jerusalem and the Temple Mount, to be the center of the universe, and of course, we know that this was already the center in some ways. This was where Jacob dreamed of the ladder, and the place that uh, the uh, uh, binding of Isaac took place, and all this. Uh, this is again, all this is exegesis, which came later. But the but originally, the original temple, the tabernacle, was not bound to one place, you could move from one place to the other, meaning that the temple is essentially not bound to a certain place. It's, it's, it's bound to God in a more internal way. So, it, we, we live post-King David, and there is a central point, but it's very different to address that point uh, thinking that this is an actual objective center and and thinking, no, this is just the resting place of the Ark. That's where it should be and it should stay. But the ark itself is something that moves, something that is unbound by time. This is very powerful to to remember this, and it comes and and the story helps us, you know, remember this and realize this. Now this connects us to now we we're, we really what we want to do here is we want to go further and further inside. We're starting with a tabernacle. That's a very physical structure, and there are a lot of actual physical details and measurements of how you build it. But we started with just pointing out the, the fact that the, that the original temple, the tabernacle, is something you can uh, you know, take, deconstruct and construct again and move from place to place. Which means it's already something a bit more spiritual than just a physical building because it's not rooted into a particular place. It's something you can uproot and root again in another place. Now we want to move further, you know, abstract it. So, it says, V'asu You shall build me a sanctuary. And the sages say, every time that this word appears, "li" to me, for me, it's something that's eternal. Meaning, the commandment to construct a sanctuary doesn't just refer to the tabernacle in the desert in that period of time. It's an eternal, constant commandment. It's always there. So when the first temple was built by King Solomon, it was a continuation of following, observing this commandment. Because li means eternally. And then when the second temple was built, again it was a continuation. When the third temple will be built, we're still obligated at each and every moment to perform this commandment of building a sanctuary. Now what happens when we don't have a temple, like right now? So, an explanation says, well, every shul, every synagogue, is like a little temple. And when you're building a shul, and you have an ark, and in the ark you put the, the book of the Torah, a Torah book, uh, a Torah scroll, that is uh, the, the sanctuary. And each and every shul all over the world is a sanctuary. And then it also says, not only that, but also a house of study. Where you study the Torah, it's also a bit of a sanctuary. It also, it's also a way of performing, observing this commandment of building a sanctuary. But what happens if, God forbid, not only do we, do we not have a temple, but it happened in history that we have no shul, we have no synagogue, and we have no house of study? How do we perform this eternal constant? Commandment to build God a sanctuary. So then comes the explanation that just reads the verse very carefully. The verse should have read, "Vasuli mishkan v'shachanti betocho." You shall build me a sanctuary so that I may dwell within it. But it's not what it says. It says, "Build me a sanctuary so that I may dwell among among them or within them," and that is with in the heart of each and every Jew who wants to be connected to the Torah and to God in the heart of each individual. And this is the ultimate, uh, you know, spiritual reading or understanding of what the tabernacle, what the sanctuary is. The sanctuary should exist within the heart of each and every one of us. And this is the way, the ultimate way, to observe this commandment everywhere and always. Even if we don't have a temple and we don't have a synagogue or there's a lockdown and we can't go out to the synagogue, uh, or there's, we can't go to a place of study, wherever we are, there's one place that is always with us, it walks with us, it goes with us, just like the original sanctuary was something that was transient, that you can move. Uh, and that is our own hearts. Our own hearts go with us wherever we go. And this is the deepest understanding of what the sanctuary is all about. Now of course it doesn't mean that we don't need the external physical one, it just means that we we also need the internal one. And in many ways, if we have the external one and we don't build, construct within our own hearts a spiritual one, in many ways the external one becomes very empty. Now we don't have a temple, and so this is the time, a time to focus on constructing. Transforming our own hearts into inner sanctuaries. So now we want to look at some details that have to do with the how the tabernacle is constructed, and especially the ark, and use it in a way that inspires us and guides us as to how do we do this. But before we go into these details, there's another another story uh, that we want to we want to go into. Um, hang on, before that, now I realize there are some more things that I wrote down that I want us to further just open this up, and then we'll go to the story and then to the details. So, you know, there's an, there's an expression called the eye of the storm. The eye of a storm uh, describes the central point of a tornado of a, or a hurricane, a storm that is like a, like a spiral and the, the eye of the storm is the central point. And the incredible thing about it is because the storm is circular, it goes around it, the eye of the storm is absolutely calm. The dead center of the storm is absolutely calm. And theoretically, if you're in the very center of a tornado, nothing will happen to you. It only happens to you if you're in the periphery. Now this, this idiom, the eye of the storm, is a beautiful image for what the inner sanctuary is supposed to be. The world is a stormy place. Our own psyches, our own internal world, is also a stormy place. And, you know, moods can change so quickly, and sometimes, it depends on, you know, the period of time you have in your life, but sometimes it's uh, it can drive you crazy. Unless you find the eye of the storm. What is the eye of the storm? The eye of the storm... Is the point within you that your eye, your internal eye, is I also is, is double meaning. It's E Y E. It's also your eye, your eye center, the center of who you are. It's your eye, as in the letter I, and it's your internal eye, your spiritual eye, that needs to look upwards. If you look upwards and you remember God and you remember that God is really at the center of all the storms. Your internal ones and the external ones around you, you become very calm. It gives you calm. So, if your I, as in the letter I, as and as in who you are, its internal I, E Y E, is focused on God, you place yourself in the center, in the eye of the storm, and you become very calm. And this is really, and this is the, the this is just beginning to visualize, to understand, to appreciate the idea of constructing an inner sanctuary. It says that the eyes of God are constantly focused on the land of Israel. Of course, He guides the entire universe. Everything happens, nothing happens by chance. And He guides and controls everything on earth and in the universe. But His main focus of attention is the land of Israel. You know, many people are surprised, many people outside of Israel, non-Jews, are surprised sometimes that Israel is such a tiny country because the amount of media coverage it gets is so incredible that they're sure it's as big as Texas at least. And then they look at the map and they realize it's such a pinpoint. They say, so why does it take up so much room in the media and in the news? And why? Because it's not a question of of size. It's a question of, of what's going on there. And God's attention, just like the media, is focused on the land of Israel more than in other places. And from the beginning of the year to the end of the year, this is how the verse goes, the eyes of God are focused on the land of Israel. So in a way, our own eyes, there should be an internal point called Zion, Zion, a land of Israel or a Jerusalem or a temple or a Holy of Holies or an ark within us at the central point and and likewise that point is constantly looking at god just like god constantly has his attention focused on the land of israel so the place within us that corresponds to the land of israel and to the heart of the land of israel the holy of holies and the ark it should have its gaze constantly on god and this is the eye the eye of the storm now another thing we should address before continuing is the name of the parsha this is also important to help us uh, you know, put all these ideas together. The name of the parsha is Turuma. Uh, I saw the Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, in one of his sichot, one of his talks, ask today it, it, the question: uh, Why uh, is the, the why does the parsha not begin with the verse that we're talking about? They shall build me a sanctuary that I will d- that I may dwell within them. It's such a basic verse. And it sums up the introduction. It could just as well open the introduction. It could, could have been the first verse. And then the entire parsha would have been called uh, sanctuary or uh, I shall dwell among them or something like this, like this. And, and no, it was called donation, although there are other donations in the Torah. Now the thing is it's a it's a double-meaning word, like many words in Hebrew. Truma means donation, but it also means elevation. The idea is that you take your donation and you elevate it. You you, you, uh, donate it, you give it for a higher purpose. So it's a donation, but it's also an elevation. So the idea is that this word tells us something very deep about what the sanctuary is all about. The sanctuary is all about making a certain sacrifice, opening a space within you that's like making a donation. A donation is you take something, from yourself and you give it, means you create a space. You need to open a space. If you don't open a space, you can't contain anything. In order to open a space, you need to make a sacrifice or a donation. You need to give something of yourself, and then a space opens. But it also means that the entire purpose of the of the sanctuary is to elevate the physical world. Many religions, their main focus is about transcending the physical world. This is similar to elevation, but it's also, in many ways, the opposite of of elevation. Transcending is you don't care about the physical universe ultimately. You want to leave it, you want to somehow be free from it. But the Turma means that you, God dwelling within the physical universe and within our own hearts means that we're not trying to transcend our hearts, to run away from our problems and issues, and from our conflicts and our turmoils, we're trying to take all of who we are and what, and, who, and what the world is and elevate it to God so that God dwells within it. This is the deeper meaning of the name of the Parsha. So all this is giving us all kinds of points of view as to what the, the, the true meaning of constructing an inner sanctuary within, within ourselves. Now let's move to the second story. Second story is that it tells us Moses Moshe's reaction uh, to God when he heard the various details of how to construct the tabernacle, and again, it's very detailed. There are a lot of wooden planks, a particular number with a particular size, and they have to be put together. And then the ark also has a very particular size, and everything is very detailed. And it's very it's relatively small. And then it says that when Moshe received all these instructions, he was very confused. He was confounded. And he says, God, I don't understand. You fill up the entire universe and all the many spiritual universes beyond the physical universe. The higher worlds, the lower worlds, lower worlds no place is without your presence. You are infinite. And in fact, the entire universe, or multiverse, the Kabbalah in many ways, not just the Kabbalah, also the the sages, they speak about a kind of spiritual multiverse, not the scientific multiverse, which is all physical, but a spiritual multiverse, in which our universe is one of an infinite number of spiritual universes that are above and beyond this universe. All of this Jewish Kabbalistic multiverse itself is too small to contain you. And in fact, who said this very, very explicitly? It was King Solomon, when he constructed the first uh, temple. He said, HaShamayim, he says, could God dwell on earth? I'm quoting from, from the first book of Kings, chapter 8, verse 27. Uh, is it possible for God to dwell on earth? The heavens... And the heavens of the heavens, meaning the heavens to their furthermost reaches, uh, cannot contain you. You're too big for the entire multiverse. And yet this house will contain you? Solomon was also confounded by this. Now Moses came before, but it says in this story that Moses could already foresee that Solomon will ask this question and he said and king solomon it says king solomon's temple is even bigger than this temple tabernacle and he asked the question so i'm asking the question in, a, in even a more forceful way the temple was huge and he said this is so tiny for you how can you be here and i'm asking and the tabernacle is even smaller and again it's something you 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 dismantle and you rebuild and it's it's very something very you know improvised in a way and how can this be you're infinite you're everywhere you're omnipresent if you're omnipresent how can you be in one particular place it doesn't make sense uh, didn't you didn't you instruct us that we should leave all the kind of pagan idolatry mindset that bounds you to a certain statue or to a certain place or to a certain tree or to a certain piece of wood whatever it is you told us to that you have no image and you're infinite and omnipresent and eternal. And you're above all these polytheistic way of thinking. And now you're saying you want a particular house, a particular structure, a particular, you know, little box that will contain you? It doesn't make any sense. And God told him, yes, I know that's what you're thinking. And you think that by thinking this, you've reached the pinnacle of spirituality. That you have made me so abstract, and so universal, and so cosmic, and so infinite, that I cannot be contained anywhere. But I'm one step ahead of you, also. And I am paradoxical. If you're telling me that because I'm infinite, and because I'm omnipresent, it means I can't be in a particular place more than in another place, you're, you're limiting me. You're doing the opposite of what you want to do. You want me to be limitless. Why are you limiting me to the limitless? Don't limit me at all. I want to be both limitless and within a very particular set of limits. I want you to build a house with 20 planks, across 8 planks, and, uh, and, which is 30 cubits, across 10 cubits, and then I want to have a particular arc, and within that arc, I want to have the cover with the kruvim and everything, that's what I want. And I am above all limitations. I am above being limited, like the idol worshippers say, to a particular piece of wood, or stone, or tree, Uh, But I'm also not limited by being omnipresent. I can be both omnipresent and present in a particular, particular place. And that's really like saying something like this. If you're telling me that I'm only everywhere, if God is only everywhere, then in a way, He is nowhere in particular. If He's everywhere, and only everywhere, that is nowhere in particular, then he is nowhere in particular. And that's that limits God. And if he's nowhere in particular, in many ways, he's nowhere. And God wants to be somewhere in particular aside from being everywhere. And this is paradoxical, but it's a deep paradox. It means really that God can be both omnipresent and care about the entire universe as one thing but he can also more care about one detail over another detail. And also, in in a way, guide our own consciousness to care about everything and at the same time care about a particular person, say our spouse, and a particular person, say our child, and a particular place, say the land of Israel, and a particular language, a particular book, a particular piece of text, And if we're only thinking in the lines of God is everywhere, then again, He becomes nowhere in particular, and then we don't care about the particulars. But He wants us to care about the particulars also. And the only way to make us care about the particulars is by favoring certain particulars over other particulars. That's how you show that you are particular to something, that you're partial to something. God is God is both impartial and partial. That's the only way He can guide us to be both universal and particular. So that's what God is telling, um, telling Moshe, Moses. And He says, I know that you want me to be something abstract, but I'm one step ahead, and I want you to build this particular structure. And then He says, the numbers, a structure that has... 20 planks across eight planks, etc. Now really, there are levels here. There's the 20 planks and uh, from one direction, eight planks. and then you fo- and, and then you focus on the holy of Holies, which is 10 cubits uh, squared. And then you focus further, you zoom in further to the arc. The arc is one and a half cubits and then two and a half cubits across. And then finally, and this is what the Midrash now says, not only do I want you to construct me this tabernacle, and within it the Holy of Holies, and within it the Ark, finally I'm going to dwell in the smallest of places, a cubit by a cubit. Now this has two interpretations which we'll go into in a minute. But he he says, I want you to build this, and it's a concentric structure. It starts with a tabernacle, goes into the Holy of Holies. Within it, there's the Ark. And within it, there's some point, some space that's only a cubit by a cubit. Ama al-Ama. And this is really where I am. It's a, it's, it ends up being... A, and we can imagine that within that cubit by cubit, it's really just one point. One point is zero space. And that one point, this is where I'm going to address you and be revealed to you and speak to you and you need to have this zooming in to a particular place. And of course, this is teaching us something about building, building, constructing an inner sanctuary. We can say, well, everything is divine. Everything is godly. God is everywhere. And then we can say, okay, so I want to I I connect to God within my own heart. But God is telling us, it's not enough. You need to find a central point. That means zooming in going in these concentric circles further and further inside until you find a particular point which is the heart of hearts within you, and this is where I want to dwell. This means being very very focused and finding a particular point in the center of our own being and constructing the entire inner sanctuary around that central point. This is what the the inner meaning of this story of the dialogue between Moses and God. He's telling us, don't run away to this kind of abstract, universalistic thinking that says, well, God is everywhere, and He's omnipresent, and God is like, you know, the... uh, it's called cosmic cosmic microwave background radiation. Physics has discovered this a few decades ago, that there's this radiation that's omnipresent, and it, it serves as a good metaphor for the for the omnipresence of God. But if you're just holding on to that aspect of godliness, you're not addressing me from the particular point in the center of your heart in which you need me and you need me to, to be there. And in a way, it's running away into, into mysticism, into philosophy, into all kinds of ideas. It doesn't create an Intimate, personal, particular connection to God. For that, you need to stop talking about the general omnipresence of God and how everything. You know, it's like speaking in um, how do you say sismaot that you slogans. It's saying yes, God. Everything is uh, divinely ordained. Everything is uh, is providence. That's like a slogan. In order to move from slogans. To a real connection, you need to focus and go inner in more and more inside yourself until you find the inner point that you can connect to God in this very very private way and personal way. Now let's now let's go further deep into how we do this. When God created the world, the Kabbalistic description is that He did something called tzimtzum. The word simtoom has two meanings, and I'm, I'm, I'm referring to this word because it appears in this story, in this midrash, that in the dialogue between God and Moses, the final God has the final word, and the final word is, "I shall contract my presence to a cubit by a cubit." This is the final word of this story. Not only do I insist that you build me a sanctuary. But eventually, I'm only going to be present in a particular point within that sanctuary, and the phrase is, I'm going to contract my presence to this tiny space of a cubit by a cubit. So the word contraction is a very, very important Kabbalistic term. In Hebrew, it's called tzimtzum, contraction. And it's used in Kabbalistic description of the construction of the universe in two ways. And we need this Because we need to uh, repeat those two actions within ourselves. So, the first contraction, when we say the word contraction, we think about taking something big and compressing it. But that's not the first contraction. The first contraction is a contraction that works sideways. You open, God first opened the space within himself. This is the first tzimtzum, the first contraction. The first contraction is God creating an inner space within himself in order to give, give room to the world, to the universe existing. He was this infinite light, and he himself chose a central point within himself, and then he, he contracted sideways. He pushed aside his own infinite light and created an empty space. That's the first contraction. It's a kind of negative contraction, because you create a space. Then, he came the second contraction. That is more like what we think of when we use the word contraction. That was compressing, or condensing, a, his light into a single line of light. That now entered this empty space, and the world was created from that line. So there's a space, and there's a line. And the space is created by a negative contraction, and the line is created by a positive, that is a compressing kind of contraction, that he has a ton of things to say, and a tons of potential universes to build, but then he contr- he constructs this particular universe, or multiverse, using that line of light. So the picture is that you first have this uh, infinite light, And then you have this sort of black circle or space that opens within it. That's the first negative contraction. And then a line of light goes into that space from the surrounding light and that that is like the let there be light of creation that, that begins creating the world within this space. We have to emulate this. Building the tabernacle, building the Holy of Holies, building the Ark, this is all in the way of the first negative contraction. It means creating a space within us. Creating a space within us means like a kind of um, a, a quiet space that's free from all the noise of external reality and our own thoughts. This is, you know, it requires a lot of inner quiet. And you need to create a space in which no foreign external noise, noisy thoughts come in. It's like going into a quiet room and locking the door. And every room, every house should have a room, a place designated for study and prayer, and this is, this is really Jewish meditation. You don't need to sit in a certain position, you don't need to do all kinds of, you know, dramatic breathing, it's very, very subtle, it's very internal. If breathing helps, you can do the breathing, if whatever is sitting in a particular position helps, then do it, but that's not the thing. The thing is, within you, creating this space. That, this is like the sanctuary and the, and the ark. Then, you need the second contraction. The second contraction is to fill that space with Torah. This is placing the, the, the tablets within the ark. And the ark within the Holy of Holies. But the thing is, placing the tablets within the ark is filling that space with holy thoughts. First, you need to create a space because then otherwise you have no room for those holy thoughts. And then you need the holy thoughts guided by the Torah to fill that space. Outside that space is a very noisy desert. The desert sounds like a quiet place, but that's not how it is really. In at nighttime, there are all kinds of and there are many descriptions with this in the Torah, all kinds of birds who wail throughout the night and jackals, and midbal comes from speaking. And it could be holy-speaking, it could also be unholy-speaking. And the world is very noisy. Uh, But you need a place, a safe space within you that's first very, very quiet. And then once you have that inner calm and peace and quiet, you can start learning Torah in a way that you can really hear the Torah. Because it doesn't get mixed up with all the other noises. And then the voice of God can be revealed and can be heard. So, the first element and 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 those two actions, those two contractions, the first one that creates a space and the second one that concentrates on learning Torah, this is called faith and confidence. This is a major teaching by Rabbi Ginsburg, that creating the inner space, this is what faith is all about, is just creating an empty faith isn't something isn't something. It's in a way, it's nothing. It's creating a space in which there's nothing but God. It's not yet, there's no particular thought or image or idea within it. It's just not thinking about this world and not being confused by this world. So having that space, this is what faith is all about. It just lays the groundwork. It just gives you a space. And then filling it with positive Holy Torah thoughts, this gives you confidence. Confidence that you have a particular truth that you hold on to, and you can follow, and it's like a line. It has a lot of, infinite amount of, you know, a line is an infinite series of dots, of points, and you can go from one point to the next point, and you're getting closer and closer to God, uh, the more you have this inner line. This inner line is a bit like your spinal cord. It's like a cord. This line is also called a cord. It's like a spinal cord, so you create a space, a bit like the ribcage. You can think about the ribcage as a metaphor for the space that you need within you. Also, that's where the lungs are. So, that's why a lot of meditation techniques involve breathing, because really they're trying to take the ribcage as a metaphor for creating inner space. So, the inner space, anatomically, exists in the lungs, Within the rib cage. But then the rib cage and the, and the space that you have, uh, you need to connect to the spinal cord. This is where the, the rib cage is coming out from. And the spinal cord is like the line of light that goes all the way up, further up than your own skull and your own body. It goes all the way up to God. So, and this is confidence. Having a spinal cord, having your own central axis. This gives you confidence to act in the world. And you need those two things. So the first, the creating a space, like creating the tabernacle and the ark. And the second contraction is creating the spinal cord, is put, placing the tablets within the ark. Now we're getting to the to the heart of our, uh, our, our learning for this evening. Where, so the, the end of this little story, the dialogue between God and, and Moses is God telling Moses, I'm going to contract my presence and place it in a one-by-one cubit space. And then here the interpreters have two interpretations for this. And this leads us to really getting into the details and how they provide us with inspiration for inner work. Two opinions as to what this space is in the tabernacle. One opinion, this is the space between the two cherubs. We have the Ark. The Torah, the tablets are within the Ark. A golden cover is placed on top of it. and Out of the golden cover come the two angels, the two cherubs. And they're facing one another with their wings. But they don't touch their faces. There's a space between their faces. And in an invisible point... In that center, this is where the dwelling, this is the dwelling place of God. And this is where God's voice is coming from when Moses speaks to him. It's coming from the space between those two angels. That's one opinion. Second opinion, there was something else that was exactly one by one cubits in size. And this is each of the tablets. The tablets, as opposed to, you know, the Christian. Paintings, I'll have them, you know, be this kind of shape, this round shape. But that's not the description in Judaism. The description in Judaism is that they're two cubes. The tablets are two cubes. And they're a one by one by one cubit cube. And maybe that's where the word cubit comes from. I don't know. Because it's it has to do with the cubes of the tablets. So the idea is that the, so the first opinion is that the presence is in the space between the angels, between the sheriffs. Second opinion, the presence is in each of the tablets, because they're also one by one qubits. One opinion is that it's above the ark. The other opinion that it's within the ark. One opinion that it's between these two angels and has nothing to do with the Torah. Second opinion It absolutely has to do with the Torah, it has to do with the two tablets that are the foundation of the Torah. Now, this debate, and of course every major debate in Judaism, we have a rule, that the rule is, these and these are the words of the living God. That whenever you have two sages that are arguing about something, you need to say, this complexity, this dispute, these conflicting opinions, they reveal something about the paradoxical nature of God. So this dispute, their both opinions are true. Both opinions need to be true. There is an element in which God is revealed through the Torah within the ark, and there's an element that God is revealed above the ark and outside of the Torah just in the space between the angels. And we have to understand this, and then we have to figure out how it looks when we're connecting to God from our own inner sanctuary. Now, these two opinions have to do with a a more major dispute. And this is a dispute between Rashi, the famous commentator, the most basic commentator, and the Ramban, Nachmalides. And their dispute is about the covering. Now, the covering is the, the cover, the kaporet. The cover of the ark is described in the second segment of the parsha. It's outside of our realm of discussion, but, but it connects to, to our segment, right? Because it, it, our segment ends with the description of the ark and the second segment begins with the description of the cover. And the fact that there's this split tells us that something is very confusing here. So I'm going to make it very short. Nachmanides, the Ramban, says that the cover is part of the Ark. It's part of the Ark. So, For example, he says that before you place the the tablets in the Ark, you need to construct the cover, because the cover is part of the Ark. You build the Ark, you build the cover, the cover is just part of the Ark, and then you place the Torah. What this opinion really means Is that it means that the main thing is the Torah, the tablets within the Ark, and the cover, as beautiful with the two angels and everything, it's just a cover. It's just it's part of the Ark. It's supposed to contain the Torah. In the center is the Torah. This goes along with the opinion that God, that the one by one cubit where God's presence is revealed, is in the Torah. Nachmanides, the Ramban, says. Our connection to God is primarily through the Torah. And that's why the cover is just part of the Ark. And and this goes with many, many different... It's very consistent about this. Rashi says, no, 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 no. The cover is its own thing. It's not just part of the Ark. There's a reason that it, 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 it belongs to the second segment of the parasha. It's a different thing. And, and it's not that you build the Ark and the cover and then you put the Torah. And you build the Ark, you put the Torah in it, and then you build the cover. Because the cover is its own thing. The Ark is for the Torah, but the cover is something else. What is the Ark all about? The Ark is about the union, intimate union with God. That's why it's the two angels facing each other. A male and female angel facing each other. It's like, it's like marriage, it's like an intimate union. It's its own thing. And this opinion goes with the idea, Rashi's opinion goes with the idea that when God said, told Moshe, I am going to contract my dwelling into a one-by-one one cubit space, he wasn't talking about the Torah tablets, he was talking about the space between the angels. The angels are part of the cover, and the cover is its own thing. Now, th- this debate it goes beautifully with the famous question that the Zohar poses. The Zohar says that three things are intimately connected. The people of Israel and the Torah and God. Now, the usual interpretation is that the people of Israel are connected to the Torah and the Torah is connected to God. Therefore, the only way for a Jew to connect to God is through, or for any, any person, to connect to God is through the Torah. That's the only way. And this goes with the Nachmanides, the Ramban's interpretation that the central element here is the Torah. The Torah is the only way to connect to God. But the second deeper reading says that if you read the Zohar carefully, it says there are three ties here, three points of contact. So if you have three elements, people of Israel, Torah, God, but the only way to connect to God is through the Torah. You have only two links here, two connections, two points of of connecting. There's a connection between the people of Israel and the Torah, and a connection between the Torah and God. But the Zohar says three bonds, three connections. So there's a direct channel connecting the Jewish people to God that bypasses the Torah. And this is the path, the channel of tshuva, of return, of repenting, of of praying directly to God. This goes along with Rashi. Ramban says that the the central thing here is the Torah. And the cover is just a cover. And the Torah is the channel to connect to God. But Rashi says, no, the Torah is very important. But the cover adds another element. It creates the element of an intimate union with God that's above the Torah. That you don't need the Torah to have this. Now let's translate all of this into our inner work. And we have something very, very special to, to think about, to ponder in this week, throughout this week and throughout our lives. How, what are the stages to building an inner sanctuary? We, we already said two stages, now we're going to add a third one. And we're going to connect everything together. First stage, create a space. Create an inner, calm, safe, quiet space within you. This is the arc. And you do this amidst and, and among and throughout your own hardships and turmoils of your life. You don't wait for a better day, for a better time. You do this now with all the confusion that you have in your life. There's something very beautiful. If you look at the measurements of the arc, each measurement has a half in it. It's a one and a half cubit, over one and a half cubit, over two and a half cubits. It's all half measurements. There's no whole number there. And the idea is that you build the arc in a... In a broken state, it echoes. It reflects your brokenness. The ark has to do with being broken, not being whole. So I'm. The, it, I'm my life is. It, there are broken things in it. That are asymmetrical. That are, they don't make sense. And this is very, very precious and vital. And I need to take this brokenness, and build the ark from this brokenness. This is why all the measurements, all the measures of the, the, the ark have a half. It's a number and a half. It's something and a half. It's never a whole number. And also, it, the way it's built, it's made of wood, but it's covered in, both on the outside and the inside by gold. Eventually you don't see the wood. The idea is that it's made up of very simple material. You're very simple you want to elevate it. So you cover it with gold, and you cover it with gold on both sides. But what it really is, it's wood. Is I'm very, I'm a very simple person. I want to elevate my reality. So I want to use gold to elevate it. But within it, you don't see it, but I, you know, you feel it, you know it, that within it, it's very simple wood. And also the kind of wood refers to the various confusions of your life. It's called Atsay shitim. Atsay shitim has to do with Shtut. Shtut is nonsense. Is my head is full of nonsense, but I want to take the nonsense and I want to take the brokenness and I want to construct an arc with it. That is opening the space amidst the confusions, not negating or you know, um, repressing or ignoring your confusion. Is you take the confusion within the confusion you create a space. Second stage you Place the Torah tablets within it. You take Torah, The Torah tablets are one by one cubits. That's a whole number again. Now you bring wholeness and clarity and divine truth into this space. And and this is what the second stage we spoke about. This is like the line of light coming into the space. This gives you confidence, and it fills this empty space. And the tablets, this is the, This goes along with the This opinion, that the central point here is the Torah, and the opinion that when God told Moshe that he is going to contract his dwelling to a one-by-one one cubit space, it talks about the tablets. You study Torah, it, it gives your life meaning, it gives your life order, and God is revealed through that Torah. This is the second stage. What happens when it doesn't work? What happens when the Torah doesn't do it for you? When you've fallen so hard that the words of the Torah become empty for you? That this kind of, you have the broken space, and you have a very whole and perfect Torah within that space. But it doesn't it's like you've fallen in the space between the tablets. And neither part of the Torah speaks to you. There are moments that you, you have all these books and you feel empty, you open a book and it doesn't help. You read the book and it doesn't resonate. And you feel the Torah, you know, there are many times that the Torah is amazing. But there are, many, there are other times that no book just does anything to you. It just feels empty, it feels hollow. It feels like just words and words and words, more words. And then people tell you, so read some more words, and you read some more, it doesn't help. Because it's like you're in the space between the letters now. The words have meaning, but you're in a place of meaninglessness, you're in a place you feel so empty, that the more words you you read, the more empty you feel, instead of the more fulfilled you feel. Because... You're not in, the, in a place of words or letters. You're in, a, you're in a space between the letters. Rabbi Nachman has a very famous Torah about this. That sometimes, that sometimes it, the letters get confused and then you learn Torah and the Torah puts your letters together again in a good way. But sometimes you're in a space beyond words and no words help. Now comes the third stage. The third stage is placing the cover on top of the Torah. Connecting to a place that's above the Torah, that's that's just two faces looking at each other quietly, not speaking. They have baby faces, it's a baby girl and a baby boy. Baby means they're very innocent, very simple, very un um, what's the word, the unassuming, unpresumptuous. And they just look at each other and they remember one another, and they remember their love for one another. And they're there without any words. And and this is Rashi telling us that the cover is not just a cover. It's not just part of the Ark, a way to contain the tablets of the Torah from all sides. This is what Ramban said, Nachmanides. But Rashi says, no, no, no. The ark, the cover, sorry, the cover is its own thing. It's its own level of connecting to God within you. It's a level of an intimate union that's above and beyond words. It's where words fail you. You need to place this image, a visual image. It's one of the biggest riddles. How can there be a, a statue within the Holy of Holies? That's because we're moving to a space. That's above and beyond words. It's two faces facing, looking at one another, eyeing one another. This is really the eye of the storm. It's God looking at us and us looking at God. And then in the space between the angels, new words emerge. A voice is heard. A voice that connects you to God in a, in a channel that bypasses the Torah, that is above the Torah. This is why it's actually above the tablet. And it, it enables you to elevate everything about you to, uh, to, a, to connecting to God, even though uh, the Torah doesn't resonate at that moment. Ultimately, the sanctuary is made up of all three elements. You can't have just the cover without the ark and the tablets if you don't have the ark then the cover is just falls on the ground there's nothing to hold to hold it if you don't have the tablets within the within the ark then also the cover becomes meaningless the cover needs to reflect the two angels reflect the two tablets so you need both the ark which is the space you build within you and the tablets, which is the words of the Torah, the ideas, the commandments, the stories, the wisdom of the Torah, to fulfill you, to fill you up. And this gives you an initial level of wholeness within your brokenness. But the thing is that sometimes even this wholeness feels broken compared to another kind of connection you need to God. And then you get the third stage, and the third level. And this is the level of connecting to God in a way that's beyond words, that's very quiet, very simple. It's just remembering Him and connecting to Him in a a heartfelt, wordless prayer that He then echoes back. And within that sound of silence, an actual sound, an actual form of speech, God's words can be heard. This is where Moses heard God's words. They came, they emanated from the space between the angels. So, this is our takeaway for, for this week from the parsha Turma, is that we now that we're only longing for a physical, actual temple, it, the, good, the bad thing about it is that we don't have a temple, we don't have a center, we don't have a place for pilgrimage, and we're scattered. We're all scattered. But the, there is a good thing about it. This is the purpose of all the exile. The purpose of the exile is that we learn how to construct an inner sanctuary so that f- when finally redemption comes and the physical sanctuary is built, it will resonate within us. And we build this sanctuary by creating a space within our brokenness and by filling it with Torah words and wis- words of wisdom and then by connecting to God also in a direct way that's just facing him and needing him and communing with him. So this is our class for Tolma for this week. Hi, if you enjoyed this video, please press like and subscribe to the channel. Don't forget to hit the bell icon. Also, you're very much welcome to join our free weekly Zoom class once every Sunday. You can find the link in the description below. And until then, you can enjoy some more videos right now. Thank you.